Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 20th through Sunday, February 23rd feature Ricardo Muti joined by the orchestra's bass clarinet player, J. Lowry Bloom, in a program of Beethoven and Bakri, the Beethoven Symphony No. 2 and after intermission, Symphony No. 5, and in between, music by Nicola Bakri, the world premiere of Ophelia's Tears with J. Lowry Bloom as soloist. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on Nicolas Bacri's Ophelia's Tears, a concertante elegy for bass, clarinet, and orchestra, the performance time around 15 minutes. When Nicolas Bacri was a teenager, he heard Aaron Copland's clarinet concerto on the radio. Not knowing what this wonderful music was, he listened to the very end and then waited for the announcer to tell him what he had just heard. Benny Goodman was the soloist. He asked his parents for the record for Christmas. For the next few months, he listened to it over and over again. Then, a year or so later, he discovered Brahms' two clarinet sonatas, written for Richard Milfeld, whose playing inspired Brahms to give up retirement and return to composing. These were the first three works for clarinet that I really loved, he said in an interview last year, reflecting on his own output as a composer and its abundance of music featuring the clarinet. Bakri started taking piano lessons at the age of seven and eventually studied musical analysis and composition privately at first and then at the Paris Conservatory, from which he received first prize in 1983. By then, his career as a composer had already begun. Today, he is one of France's most successful and prolific composers, with seven symphonies and ten string quartets in his extensive catalog, which spans four full decades of composition. To date, Bakri has written some 30 works that feature the clarinet in a solo role, from the 1985 Bagatelles for clarinet and piano to Ophelia's Tears, the new score for bass, clarinet, and orchestra that is receiving its first performances at these concerts. Bakri's first clarinet concerto, Capriccio Notorno, was composed in the mid-1980s at the very end of what he calls his Orthodox Modernism period. Earlier, Elliot Carter, the pioneering American composer, had singled him out as one of the most important voices in the French avant-garde. Bakri's first symphony is dedicated to Carter. But then, realizing how few performers liked the path contemporary music was taking, he returned to a more tradition-based language, highly dependent on melodic line and tonality, and relegating atonality to the role of an expressive device. It marked the turning point in his career, liberating him to write his most compelling and most personal music. Like many of the composers of our time, he has fashioned his own language out of many disparate yet compatible parts. It is a mirror, in a sense, of the complex, multifaceted time we live in. As he wrote in his first book, Foreign Notes, in 2004, my music is not neoclassical, it is classical, for it retains the timeless aspect of classicism, the rigor of expression. My music is not neo-romantic, it is romantic, for it retains the timeless aspect of romanticism, the density of expression. And my music is modern, for it retains the timeless aspect of modernism, the broadening of the field of expression. My music is 
postmodern, for it retains the timeless aspect of postmodernism, the mixture of techniques of expression. Now describing himself as a conservative composer, Bakri continues to explore the expressive potential of the clarinet. He still considers the Concerto da Camera of 1998 as the most ambitious of these many scores, coming at a time when symphonic thinking was becoming clearer in his mind. But there are many other pieces, including an elegy for A.C., written to pay homage to Aaron Copland a year after his death in 1990, and the Sonata da Camera, composed first for the viola and then transcribed for clarinet, reversing Brahms' procedure of transforming his clarinet sonatas into works for the viola. For many years, Bacri has been attracted to the character of Ophelia, the tragic young noblewoman who is driven to insanity in Shakespeare's Hamlet. He first composed Ophelia's Mad Scene for voice and solo clarinet in 2018. It is a kind of modern-day counterpart to the grand mad scenes of 19th century opera, although the virtuosity of Bakri's writing bears little resemblance to the soprano's empty coloratura roulades in Ambroise Tobas's once popular opera, Hamlet. Bakri's more immediate inspiration was the vocal work of Kathy Berberian, the pioneering singer who was married to Luciano Barrio. In that score, the clarinet played a role as important as the soprano. Bakri described the part as the synthesis of all the musical content in the piece. Ophelia's mad scene has led to two subsequent works on the same theme, Ophelia's solo for clarinet, also dating from 2018, and now Ophelia's tears for bass clarinet and orchestra, completed last year. And here are notes by Nicolas Bacri himself on Ophelia's tears. Ophelia's Tears, Concertante Elegy, Opus 150 for bass, clarinet, and orchestra, was composed in 2019 and finds its inspiration in my Ophelia's Mad Scene, Opus 146. The work is divided into three sections. The first, Tragedy, is a kind of prelude and fugue. It presents thematic ideas that vary throughout the work. The prelude has the character of a solemn opening and puts the emphasis on the interval of a fifth, as if to recall the archaic feeling of the royal palace of Shakespeare's play, a crossroads of powers mixed with the absurd and the rational, as is often the case in politics. The fugue that follows evokes the violence of political stakes and the threat of a foreign military invasion. It is already a development of the thematic motifs introduced in the prelude. The second part, Madness, continues the development of ideas heard previously, evokes the confusion reigning in the mind of an Ophelia torn between her love for Hamlet, the sadness of being rejected by him, and the overwhelming knowledge of her father's murder by the one she loves in a sort of grotesque homicide. Shakespeare's heroine thus offers us the sad picture of a soul having suffered the pangs of the most complete absence of meaning and, in the fit of madness that precedes her suicide, seems to appeal to a memory of this meaning, but in a completely disorderly fashion. This provokes in her a heartbreaking back and forth between blame and dignity, lamentation and feigned gaiety. 
As for the gigue, in the form of a pasacalia, it corresponds in its lighter passages to Ophelia's feigned gaiety, good night ladies, but also and above all in its most dramatic passage to the progressive intensification of the role that Hamlet must play until the final outcome of Shakespeare's play. After a melodic interlude by the soloist, the third section, entitled Death, offers a return of the elements of the opening on a D pedal followed by an intensely dramatic song by the strings taken up more calmly by the soloist with a simple harmonic support of the strings, while the woodwinds superimpose elements of the gigue in a fast tempo. The work ends in a dreamlike climate, in hieratic chords based on fifths on a semitone oscillation, E-flat D, of the soloist in the instrument's lower register. Ophelia's Tears was commissioned by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and is dedicated to Lowry Bloom and to the memory of Oliver Nussen. Notes by Nicolas Bacri and by Philip Huscher on Ophelia's Tears. And now on to Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Opus 67, a work lasting about 36 minutes. This is the symphony that, along with an image of Beethoven agitated and disheveled, has come to represent greatness in music. Perhaps we are speaking only of the very opening seconds, just as we may remember vividly and accurately no more than the Mona Lisa's smile or the first ten words of Hamlet's soliloquy. It's hard to know how so few notes, so plainly strung together, could become so popular. There are certainly those who would argue that this isn't even Beethoven's greatest symphony, just as the Mona Lisa isn't Leonardo's finest painting. Beethoven himself preferred his Eroica to the Fifth Symphony. And yet, it's hardly famous beyond its merits, because one can't easily think of another single composition that, in its expressive range and structural power, better represents what music is all about. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has spoken forcefully and directly to many listeners, trained and untrained, over the years. We each listen and understand in our own way. We can probably find ourselves somewhere here among the characters of E.M. Forster's Howard's End. Whether you are like Mrs. Munt and tap surreptitiously when the tunes come, of course not so as to disturb the others, or like Helen, who can see heroes and shipwrecks in the music's flood, or like Margaret, who can only see the music, or like Tibby, who is profoundly versed in counterpoint and holds the full score open on his knee, or like their cousin Fräulein Mosbach, who remembers all the time that Beethoven is echt Deutsch, or like Fräulein Mosbach's young man, who can remember nothing but Fräulein Mosbach. In any case, the passion of your life becomes more vivid, and you are bound to admit that such a noise is cheap at two shillings. And that is why we still go to concerts, although two shillings will no longer buy Mrs. Munt a seat, and whether we see shipwrecks or dominant sevenths, we may well agree, while caught up in a captivating performance, that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is the most sublime noise that has ever penetrated into the ear of man. For a while, it was somewhat overshadowed by the Ninth Symphony, which seemed to point the way to the rest of the 19th century and emboldened generations of composers to think differently of the symphony or of music in general. But the Fifth has never really lost its appeal. Robert Schumann, whose musical predictions have often come true, wrote that 
This symphony invariably wields its power over men of every age like those great phenomena of nature. This symphony, too, will be heard in future centuries, nay, as long as music and the world exist. A familiarity that only a handful of pieces in any century earn has largely blunted much of the work's wild power for our ears, and knowledge of the many works that couldn't have been written without this as their example has blinded us to the novelty of Beethoven's boldest strokes, the cross-reference between the famous opening and the fortissimo horn call in the scherzo, the way the scherzo passes directly and dramatically into the finale, and the memory of the scherzo that appears unexpectedly in the finale, all forging the four movements of the symphony into one unified design. There's no way to know what the first audience thought. For one thing, that concert given at the Theater an der Wien on December 22, 1808, was so inordinately long, even by 19th century standards, and jammed with so much important new music that no one could truly have taken it all in. J. F. Reichardt, who shared a box with Prince Lopkowitz, later wrote, there we sat from 6.30 till 10.30 in the most bitter cold and found by experience that one might have too much, even of a good thing. Reichardt and Lopkowitz stayed till the end, their patience frequently tried not by the music, to which these two brought more understanding than most, but by the performance, which was rough and unsympathetic. Surely some in the audience that night were bowled over by what they heard, though many may well have fidgeted and daydreamed, uncomprehending, or perhaps even bored. Beethoven's was not yet the most popular music ever written, and even as great a figure as Goethe would outlive Beethoven without coming to terms with the one composer who was clearly his equal. As late as 1830, Mendelssohn tried one last time to interest the aging poet in Beethoven's music, enthusiastically playing the first movement of the Fifth Symphony at the piano. But... That does not move one, Goethe responded. It is merely astounding, grandiose. Take the celebrated opening, which Beethoven once, in a moment he surely regretted, likened to fate knocking at the door. It is bold and simple, and thus, like many of the mottos of our civilization, susceptible to all manner of popular treatments, none of which can diminish the power of the original. Beethoven writes eight notes, four plus four, the first ta-ta-ta-tum, falling down from G to E-flat, the second from F to D. For all the force of those hammer strokes, we may be surprised that only strings and clarinets play them. Hearing those eight notes and no more, we can't yet say for certain whether this is E-flat major or C minor. As soon as Beethoven continues... We hear that urgent knocking as part of a grim and driven music in C minor. But when the exposition is repeated and we start over from the top with E-flat major chords still ringing in our ears, those same ta-ta-ta-tum patterns sound like they belong to E-flat major. That ambiguity and tension are at the heart of this furious music, just as the struggle to break from C minor, where this movement settles, into the brilliance of C major, and it will carry us to the end of the symphony. If one understands and remembers those four measures, much of what happens during the next thirty-odd minutes will seem both familiar and logical. We can hear fate knocking at the door of nearly every measure of the first movement. 
The forceful horn call that introduces the second theme, for example, mimics both the rhythm and the shape of the symphony's opening. We can also notice the similarity to the beginning of the fourth piano concerto, and in fact, ideas for both works can be found in the same sketchbooks, those rich hunting grounds where brilliance often emerges in flashes from a disarray matched only by the notorious condition of the composer's lodgings. Although the first movement is launched with the energy and urgency of those first notes, its progress is stalled periodically by echoes of the two long-held notes in the first bars. In the recapitulation, a tiny but enormously expressive oboe cadenza completely freezes the action. The extensive coda is particularly satisfying, not because it effectively concludes a dramatic and powerful movement, but because it uncovers still new depths of drama and power at a point when that seems unthinkable. The Andante con Molto is a distant relative of the theme and variations that often turn up as slow movements in classical symphonies. But unlike the conventional type, it presents two different themes, varies them separately, and then trails off into a free improvisation that covers a wide range of thoughts, each springing almost spontaneously from the last. The sequence of events is so unpredictable and the meditative tone so seductive that in the least assertive movement of the symphony, Beethoven commands our attention to the final sentence. Beethoven was the first to notice his scherzo's resemblance to the opening of the finale of Mozart's great G minor symphony. He even wrote out Mozart's first measures on a page of sketches for this music. But while the effect there is decisive and triumphant, here it is clouded with half-uttered questions. Beethoven begins with furtive music, inching forward in the low strings, then stumbling on the horns who let loose their own rendition of Fate at the Door. At some point, when Beethoven realized that the scherzo was part of a bigger scheme, he decided to leave it unfinished and move directly through one of the most famous passages in music, slowly building intention and drama over the ominous, quiet pounding of the timpani to an explosion of brilliant C major. Composers have struggled ever since to match the effect, not just of binding movements together, that much has been successfully copied, but of emerging so much dramatically from darkness to light. The sketchbooks tell us that these 50 measures cost Beethoven considerable effort, and most surprisingly, that they weren't even part of the original plan. Berlioz thought this transition so stunning that it would be impossible to surpass it in what follows. Beethoven, perfectly understanding the challenge and also that of sustaining the victory of C major once it has been achieved, adds trombones, used in symphonic music for the first time, the piccolo and the contrabassoon to the first burst of C major and moves forward towards his final stroke of genius. That moment comes amidst general rejoicing when the ghost of the scherzo quietly appears, at once disrupting C major with unexpected memories of C minor and leaving everyone temporarily hushed and shaken. Beethoven quickly restores order and the music begins again as if nothing has happened. But Beethoven still finds it necessary to end with 54 measures of the purest C major to resolve any lingering doubts and to remind us of the conquest, not the struggle. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Music